All right, everybody. Are you ready for a spectacular show? Introduce the original bad hombre, the amazing nerd, the hardest working Antifa boys on George Soros's payroll. With Pablo Morale Martinez and Ernesto Mancillo, only on Radio In the rule of death, Brooklyn. and I was just like, holy shit. And Neil Gaiman had to come out in defense of her casting because all of a sudden all the comics accurate. Oh, of course. Assholes were just like, oh, bullshit, doesn't look like Susie Seuss. And, and then, uh, you know, he was just like, it's, it's acting. <laughs> she was the best. It's fiction. It's acting. Just fucking deal with it. <laughs> these, these, uh, you know, these, these fanboys. If I, you know, you can't even call them fanboys. Just uh, comic book uh, culture incels who <laughs> just think to themselves that the main point is to make it look comic ac- comic accurate without actually questioning what the purpose of ethnicity within comics is sometimes it serves a purpose but a lot of times it doesn't like to this day and this always pisses off uh, the uh, the incels online when i present them with this question because they can't answer it i say what what part of clark kent being white is absolutely integral to the telling of his story like what what is it about what is it about him because when you think about the story of superman you know uh, it's he has to hide his identity in order to assimilate into society while also protecting the very same society that would be fucking terrified of him in real life right you know it's just like if that if that's not the black story i don't know what is <laughs> right oh dude you fucking nailed it man it's just uh, it's it's so that is so like on the money because i'm just like uh, to me it just makes more sense it's just it like it it um it, 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 and these and these comic accurate assholes are just like you know it's not my superman not my superman i'm just like say i say let him riot you know um <laughs> which is which is kind of scary to say because they might they might i mean uh, they're, they're at this point they're they're kind of inconsequential i mean yeah they make a lot of noise online but um at the same time every time they get upset the movie usually does well. Remember when yeah. they, they tried to sink uh, Captain Marvel? They're just like, we're all going to boycott. All right, well, we'll just break a billion dollars then. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, listeners. Welcome to the show. I am Ernesto Mancibo. And I'm Pablo Morale Martinez. And together we are the Robots versus Taxes program. On Radio Free Brooklyn. And this week, we have a very special guest, uh, Ifoma, a friend of mine from high school. Say hi, Ifoma. Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> We're just here to chat and hang out, to learn about each other, and maybe, uh, not maybe, but definitely go into... Uh, a very interesting program uh, that we've all been uh, tuning into. 
uh, titled Them, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. But uh, before we get into that, um, we just want to chat up Ifoma a little bit. So Ifoma, um, we've known each other for about, I don't know, does it, will we date ourselves if, uh, if, if uh, I talk about our, our days in high school or is that okay? <laughs> That's fine. I'm I'm happy to be in my forties. All right. Okay. <laughs> no, totally, totally. Same here. It's a it's a it's a blessing to uh, to reach this age. <laughs> but um, but yeah, we've known each other since high school and um, mm-hmm. uh, kept in contact through all these years, even with uh, the fledgling internet making things. Uh, uh, a little more of a of a hassle. Back in the day, we used to write letters to each other and email over dial-ups. So that helped that helped us to keep in contact, right? <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, uh, an interesting point. Uh, you are one of the founding members of Black Space, correct? Yeah, the Black Space Urbanist Collective. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Why don't you Why don't you give us a, a synopsis of uh, what the group is about and the things that you've done? Sure. Um, so we are a national network of Black urbanists, and we are also a nonprofit a registered five hundred one c three nonprofit organization, and we are a collective of Black urbanists, architects urban designers, planners, creatives, uh, you name it. Um, We understand that cities are dynamic and they require multidisciplinary approaches to problem solving. And so we are striving for equity and justice in the built environment. And our work is very much centered on the black publics. And that's those are the places and spaces that where black people are, have created, feel safe, and you know, continue to cultivate into the future. So that's that's who we are and the type of work. So we have uh, affiliates who we refer to as our quote unquote cousins. We have cousins in Atlanta, um, Oklahoma City, Indianapolis, and Chicago. And what unites all of us is just a le- legacy of institutional racism in the built environment, like the built environment being used as a tool for inflicting trauma and pain upon Black communities in particular. Mm. And so we do a lot of work to amplify, you know, our vision is that we see a future where Black people, Black culture, and Black um, um, places spaces matter and thrive. And we do that a number of ways. You know, some of our affiliates have created films amplifying historic African-American sites in their cities. In New York, we've done a lot of community development work, particularly in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Mm. Um, which is a historic African-American neighborhood. Um, We do um, treasure hunt programs with children. We facilitate conversations around black space. We've also uh, consulted for government in different cities like Philadelphia, New York, Mm. and other cities, training staff on understanding what black spaces are and how to improve black spaces moving forward with dignity and integrity. Our website, our website is blackspace.org. And one tool that we use in, in many of our spaces is our Black Space Manifesto, which is a series of 14 principles 
really to guide people who are working in, with, and for Black communities, and to do that in a way that sort of that centers the lived experience of residents and raises them up in the conversation um, so that they are seen as peers in the work of community development or even urban development. Mm. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, uh, can, you, can you tell us uh, a, a little bit more about the role? It, because you, you mentioned a little bit about the the role of uh, black space and how it it, uh, it works uh, like in conjunction with uh, governments. You mentioned Philadelphia, right? Um, so can you can you elaborate a little bit more about, about that? Uh, because I'm I'm like super interested in ever since like uh, uh, Ernesto filled me in about this uh, earlier in the week. Uh, I've been kind of like exploring and like you know going about and looking into uh, what you guys are all about. So, uh, but but that part, but that aspect of it uh, really caught my attention. So uh, so yeah. Yeah, sure. So um, I mentioned before that we have this 14 principles like the Black Faith Manifesto. And really, you know, a lot of our ideology is rooted in a lot of the work that our ancestors and people before us have, have done. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Black Panther Party. You know, they have their 10-point uh, principles, whatever. So we, we are seeing and understanding how Black people have organized themselves in the past in order to strive for liberation for Black people. And we, we are seeing that there's so much value that can add to just a conversation around the built environment. So when we, when we curate and facilitate conversations with representatives from you know, government, among other types of organizations, um, we bring in our manifesto, our Black Space Manifesto, and we have a deep workshop where they, they are able to understand those principles in their fullness. Um, and have like really meaningful conversations. So some of the principles are like, you know, what is it to cultivate wealth in a black community? And it's not just about cultivating financial resources, it's also about cultivating time, talent and treasure. And how do you do that with the built environment? You know, other points that we, we explore are moving at the speed of trust. Oftentimes when government or even any kind of like private firm goes to do work in a, in a black community, that stuff is done fast. They come in already knowing what they're going to build. They might just show community, you know, here's what we're doing and then move away. But what we're saying is that you have to move with the speed of trust and the trust is built over time. And, tr and the measure of trust is, is the community's participation and willingness to contribute to the conversation and be a part of decision-making. So that's, you know, the, those two aspects are just some parts of the, the kinds of, of understanding that we want people to get. And then we might take them through a sample project. Like if they have a project they're working on, they need some, you know, help thinking through those ideas. We might see, we might have a, you know, use the, the workshop to help them use the manifesto and test out what would that look like in your in the project that you're working on. That's dope. That's, That's dope. Amazing. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Um, if I can ask a question, uh, I'm wondering how has Black Space had to pivot over the last year uh, with the pandemic? Um, obviously, going into physical spaces and um, engaging it was, I'm sure, has probably been limited, but you know, in the age we live in, um, a lot of virtual and electronic communication is kind of uh, how we all communicate with each other. Um, is there anything 
that's been illuminated or limited in the past year to black space, given the situation? What's really fascinating is that um, in 2019, we had decided that 2020 was going to be a chrysalis year for us. And chrysalis meaning like the caterpillar, you know, goes into the cocoon and then it becomes yeah. a butterfly. So we, it was kind of our cocoon chrysalis stage. And we had already planned that was what we were going to do, though, which meant that we, were, we weren't going to do a whole lot of public engagement. It was really going to be a space and time for us to, number one, get our organization registered as, an, as a nonprofit which we were able to do, but then also just be able to, we brought in a bunch of board members, like 10 board members. So really getting them um, inundated, which is like the language of the organization, the mission, the values, really do some strategic planning. Um, and so before then in 2019, we were already having meetings on Zoom. We weren't all like hip to it. Like I fully wasn't like fully connected to it. It was sort of just like a tool we use because we're all in different parts of New York and even the country. So we were always already using Zoom for our retreats and for our board member meetings. And so when everything happened, it was sort of just like, okay, that became our single form of communication um, when we collectively communicated, but then also in developing our workshop tools that then shifted what we were doing. Cause we were doing a lot of workshops in person and we were like using printed material and cards and, and things like that. And people were, were sort of doing things with their bodies and whatnot. Um, but when everything went virtual, that just, I think that gave us, um, that allowed, allowed us to focus a bit more on those workshops and really hone in because it was no longer cultivating an, an in-person experience. It was now about the workshop itself. And so when you're no longer in person, there are fewer distractions. There's no food. Like there isn't all those other things that you have to organize as part of a day. You really have to, to um, make the information very concentrated, like not diluted with other things, but very a concentrated conversation. So instead of having a whole day workshop, you may be just having four hours and it needs to be a really good, like potent four hours. So I, over the course of, of you know, from mid-2020 to about now, we've been developing what those online, those virtual workshop tools are going to be. And so we've been working, you know, trying to bring on um, gamers, Black gamers. Um, That's dope. That's dope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Black graphic designers, um, Black UI UX designers, which are really deal with like accessibility. Mm. So designers in those re those spaces you don't really hear about. We we were we've been trying to sort of bring, you know, partner with them to take our our tools that are in person tools into like a Black space virtual game experience. Yeah, because I've, from what I've seen of the of you know of Black space, it's that it's like. Like it does a lot of like uh, urban, like uh, spatial justice, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, it, it talks a lot about spatial justice, but it also has like this art slant, which I'm, I'm really digging. So uh, I, I was just kind of like exploring how, um, you know, uh, black space kind of like lifts up um, and, and hosts events like uh, uh from uh you know people of color and and um you guys just recently had like a a virtual meeting uh with like members of moma 
And I thought that was really, really fucking dope. So sorry. <laughs> we do a lot of swearing on this show. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, uh, I, yeah, that was a lot of, it was, it was a lot of fun working with MoMA and, um, they were really gracious with us to, you know, bring us into the, this exhibition that they had. They had, to, they had an exhibition where they brought together 10 black architects who are also artists to, to create a show. And the show is up from February to, it just ended a week ago. Right. And it was called um, Reconstructions, uh, Blackness, Architecture and Blackness in America. Right. And so they brought me in, a few of us, in as advisors for the show, um, which was a really great experience. And then afterwards, um, those 10 architects who created the exhibition, they then created their own collective called the Black Reconstructions Collective. And so now we're seeing about opportunities for the, for the two collectives to collaborate on work. You know, theirs being a very um, artistic, public art-centered collective, whereas ours being you know, urban, urban and community development and urbanism-based uh, work. And so it's just seeing where, where there can be unison between our ways of operating. That's yeah, yeah that's amazing. all. That's all. Every, uh, every um, movement that I'd known, known of in the, just in the artistic world, uh, tends to follow that same pattern. Um, uh, people come together in one particular school of thought and, you know, as as art as human beings, but especially um, as artists, we're all individuals with different ideas, and we tend to splinter off and sort of follow our own paths. Uh, but when you can still uh, vibe with each other and work with each other, um, I feel like it enriches the entire landscape. So that's that's so exciting to hear. Of, uh, yeah, totally. What yeah? What led you to become part of like this this uh, this group? Um, I think I'd always been searching for my tribe and I joined the boards of other organizations, you know, like my alumni black organization. And I just, I found that there, I didn't, I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't surrounded by people who had as much, uh, charge, um, for things to move forward as, as, as black space. And so I think, you know, it takes, it takes a while for you to find your people. And so I felt like when I, when I, when I found them at this point in time, they were doing brunches, they were bringing together black planners, having conversations. And I was all about like, what's the next thing? And, you know, where are we taking this? Brunches are nice. They're great. They're important, but like how- They're also delicious. They're delicious. <laughs> right. But <laughs> um, my, my thing, my thing was like, we, this was just an abundance of intellectual power and abundance of, of people who just had, you know, all educated, you know, had jobs. Like we need to use this energy and our communities are struggling. Like, we're talking about how our communities are struggling. Like right. how do we use this energy? And, um, and so eventually, you know, that group got smaller and smaller and smaller, and it just became a concentrated, like, group of us, five of us, and we just, we got a grant. We got a grant from Jan Kaplan Fund to do work in Brownsville, and then that just led to the next thing and next thing, and now... Yeah, 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 that's cool. Now we have two staff members, two co-managing directors, who are also a part of that original, like, group of founders. Um, we've got something like three to five hundred thousand dollars that we've raised for the organization, and wow. we've got you know affiliates in these different cities. So it's like it's we're we're really moving. We're moving at it like this this <laughs> speed of trust, <laughs> so to speak. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. Uh, so like in, in, you know, with regards to like, you talked about like the growth of this group, right? Have you felt any like uh, resistance, you know, um, f- while you guys have been like, kind of like, you know, make, trying to make this, uh, this group grow? You know, there's the challenge of, uh, you know, the, what do they refer to as the nonprofit index, nonprofit industrial uh, complex, right? where, you know, once you get into that whole method of becoming a registered nonprofit, then you have to seek funds, and then you then become controlled by philanthropy. Like, whatever philanthropy says they want you to do for the money that they give you, that's oh. then what you have to do. Right. And so, whereas normally you might have, we might just grow where we're just going to take one additional affiliate per year, you know, philanthropy might, philanthropy might say, oh, why don't you expand to 10 cities in the next year? And then it becomes, okay, well, what happens to the level of quality? What happens to the level of connection? Yeah, you don't want to be spread too thin, right? Yeah, deep, meaningful, you know, conver- you know, work building, being built and whatnot. So that becomes a, a challenge, you know, because the term, you know, black space is caught on. We're seeing so many different black spaces, you know, the different iterations of the word, you know, popping up here and there. Nordstrom has, Nordstrom has a collective of fashion designers called the black space. Oh, so really? we're, you know, yeah, we're seeing a lot of it popping up here and there. So are they and biting off of you or? We don't know. No, um, we, we we were smart in the beginning. We got our our title copy. Good, uh, good, good. Yeah, yeah. Nice. To our name in like 2018, 2017, um, because we knew that this was going to be a wave. We didn't know like the whole pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement was really going to like thrust things into the atmosphere. Yeah. But that was a part of it. And when we released our Black Space Manifesto in 20 in February of 2019, that also. Um, sort of like took our our name and brand into another stratosphere because people now are seeing that this organization is about something like has a foundation a set of principles that other people can use so um what we're what we're trying to do is just try to really um be sensible in the type of funds that we apply for and um yeah and also in just the, the ways in, in which we work the the speed within which they work. Uh, that that was kind of going to be my my segue or lead in into talking about them with uh with regards to like uh the resistance <laughs> so you the uh, phone you put us on to this show holy shit um i'm i was uh i was kind of like blown away by that first episode um if we're, if we're oh, no, just gonna yeah, talk you got to get past the second episode. After the second episode, that's when all the trauma really, really yeah. comes in. If I, if I can be honest, uh, I've um, I've been seeing the advert for that show on, you know, uh, as soon as you turn on the fire stick for a while, it was just like them. And I'm like, oh, is that related to like us, uh, the film that came out a little while ago? But it, it, they're pretty much separate ent- entities. But I did a little research. I asked a friend, hey, have you been watching the show? It's just like, yeah, it's... Um, it's a lot of trauma. So if you go into the show, just sort of like gird yourself. And I'm just like, all right, you know, I'm still kind of recovering from uh, Love Lovecraft Country. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I just kind of wanted to like let that filter out a little bit. But 
um, when you mentioned that you were watching that, I, I let Pavel know and we dove in. And even last night, like at two in the morning, we're texting each other. We're just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, I, yeah. I have not finished the series yet. I'm up to episode seven, but I I have many thoughts. But, you know, what what's on your mind about it, Ifoma? Yeah, what drew you to the show? <laughs> Um, I thought it was really fascinating. And why? Because, um, you know, I, I became uh, sort of like I, I got a deeper understanding of redlining mm. Um, mm. when this when the exhibition when we were when we started having conversations about this exhibition at MoMA Day. Oh, OK. Um, All right. Cool. cool, cool. So the, the exhibition I talked about with the black architects. So at right. the center of that exhibition was really talking about the, the legacy of redlining in in key cities, in key cities where you have like prominent black neighborhoods mm. and each architect took on a different city. And so I, I say that because, you know, after that, after that, you know, during that space of advising for that exhibition, I began to understand a bit more about the impact of redlining. I'm now teaching courses that touch on it slightly. Um, and, and also to get people to understand that, you know, that what you see today is as a result of some building regulations, mm. some policies that were put in place from the 30s to the 60s, all born out of the Great Migration in the 20s. And so, what I thought was so interesting about them, it was it was a kind of like a dramatic, a dramatic like reenactment of what did occur mm -hmm. during that period of the Great Migration in the 20s until you know about the 50s. Uh, that's that, that raises an interesting point just because like uh you know with regards to like uh, uh the culture like uh, our society's consumption of knowledge in general especially now it feels like uh more pop culture shows are like delving into like real serious subjects like we just saw Watchmen uh like a few years ago with regards mm -hmm. to uh you know uh hbo's watchman where they they basically talked about the tulsa race massacre and they opened, um, they opened the whole show with the tulsa yeah they race opened race the whole massacre. yeah exactly and uh and you know it's 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 what do you think is like are, is it kind of like a a thing that you're comfortable with with regards to how pop culture kind of informs society now of like forgotten American history. Is that something that you're I, like, are you, are you I, like cool with that? Awesome. Okay, um, cool. I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. I'm so happy that um, all of this history is being brought to the surface through, you know, the film industry um, because it's not taught in architecture school. It's not taught in plan in urban planning school. Is not taught in you know public school, but it colors and it influences. It has influenced everything that we see. So when we see the condition of public housing developments, when we even see the condition of suburbs, that you know all of things are the way they are for a particular reason. The fact that you don't have a lot of like wealthy black neighborhoods that was all designed, that was all planned. Mm. Redlining was a part of that. Redlining was essentially where they where. Um, the federal government worked with banks to create a series of maps called the Homeowners Loan Corporation maps. And on those maps, there were areas that were marked red, green, blue, yellow, 
the red areas were the areas you don't want to build in. You don't, they didn't give any loans or grants mm. to those areas. And those are the only areas that black, that either black people were already existing, which is why they didn't get, you know, share loans or grants to those areas or the only areas that they could buy a home in. And so when you see this film, when you see the this, this series, them, them is essentially that point in time where those rules were ended. They stopped those rules because what they did was they said that there were certain suburb suburban areas where only white people could could own homes. They couldn't even sell their homes to black families. Yeah. But when they they when they removed that policy, when that policy changed, and now space became open for black people to now purchase homes, there was a lot of um, you know aggressive, uh, microaggressive you know, passive aggressive, aggressive, aggressive um, <laughs> reactions by the white community because they felt that their safety, their security was being um, infringed upon. Yeah. And, so, uh, and the police, and it was so interesting how the police was being used and they're still being used today as a tool for protecting white spaces and white safety. And that, uh, that resonant thinking uh, still reverberates all the way up to today. Um, the most recent example that I can think of is uh, one of Trump's last campaign uh, speeches while he was on the trail before the November election, when he was talking to suburban women saying, you know, I, you know, I will protect your neighborhoods. It's like, wow, that's not that's barely coded language to, you know, I will keep them um, out of your neighborhood. But the, totally. the, the, the scene in them when the bankers uh, were talking about uh, constructing these mortgages uh, for certain yes. areas. It yes. was it was such a you know you know it's pop culture you know it's a show but you you really felt at least I felt that it was a real window into uh, how society was shaped uh, because of these policies and that point when. Uh, even the head banker at the table, they were talking about the interest rates they were going to be putting on these loans. And somebody gave an, an exorbitantly large number, like 20%. And he was like, 20%? How does anybody get out from under that? Um, mm -hmm. It's like, even they knew, like, oh, oh, we're, these are traps that we're making. And, oh, totally. and it was completely justified, like, oh, but yeah, but we're going to make unbelievable profits. And if if they pay it, we win if they default we also win because we, we win. put we yeah. put those ha houses back on the market at a markup and just go through the whole pattern all over again i was just like this yeah. is this is the most Incredible. corporate evil thing <laughs> that has one of the uh, the biggest corporate evil things that has ever happened in this country i love that scene i was like that scene is going to make it into the classes i teach oh because oh, yes. there, I feel like no other film, at least no other film that I've seen, captures what that what that creating the whole framework would have looked like. Because it really was a partnership of all of them, mm. and there might have there might have been instances where they're all at the table, sort of just like looking at a map and just being like, "What about you know the same way they chopped up Africa?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think you know there's some parallels there, but then there's also just like you know it was really this collaborative, it was this seamless um, for this legacy to be created, and and so everything you see around you is is as a result of that one meeting at a table where decisions were made. Mm -hmm. 
and it's and it's so funny because if it's delivered in this kind of like you know uh you know horror genre candy shell where it's like uh it's teaching about a real situation real topics that affected the black community and it's delivered in this kind of like ooh, you're you're in for the spooky thrills but then it's like oh we're sneaking in some message in here um and with regards to that i've always had kind of had a conflicted kind of point of view of of the role that pop culture plays with regards to like teaching um like the the hidden history of america because it's like Mm. this is shit this is shit that i feel like should be should have been taught in schools um Mm -hmm. and and but we're getting it in like TV shows about superheroes. We're getting in it about TV shows about, you know, uh, uh, you know, haunted houses, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's really just, uh, I, I, and I'm not sure like, is it, if that's, but again, like as long as the knowledge is getting out there, right. Um, it's, I guess it's a as good thing. It's just, know it's true. Right. As long as people exactly. know that this is based on reality um, maybe a bit of an exaggeration in some instances and in other instances, not so much, mm-hmm. um, an exaggeration of reality. I mean, particularly in them where you have a lot of the very gruesome, um, just like painful moments, like some of them actually happen. And some of them I think are just like, they are, they are capturing, you know, the impact of a microaggression. Mm. Yeah. You know, and like then, microaggression seems subtle, but the impact it will have on a black woman, on me, like for myself, when I've experienced my microaggression, they can be as painful as someone slicing you with a knife mm. because it doesn't, it's like a thing that doesn't like, you know, people, it catches on and other people begin to feed into that microaggression as well. So um, I thought it was, you know, there's been a lot of negative feedback on them because it, people say it's like trauma porn. Um, which, you know, it was, it was intense, but I kind of felt like, um, you know, whatever way that the story gets out there. Yeah. I, I, am not a, I don't agree with, with people who are just like, it's trauma porn. It's, you know, I, I don't like whenever people sound that alarm, especially when it comes to like topics like these, right. Uh, because it's like this this kind of topic, especially like topics like these, where it's like, it talks about racism in a very blunt and blatant way and how um, the white hegemonic system has uh, persistently, you know, worked against the black community uh, in, in America throughout history. So uh, I, I just feel that uh, like with regards to getting a message out there, you can't like it, the time for being subtle to, for me, in particular, is over, right? That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Agreed. it's over. Agree. <laughs> if I could play devil's advocate, though, just a little bit in regards to the the <laughs> the trauma porn uh, point, um, there there is no way to sugarcoat the history of this country and present it in a um, a sanitized way to the public. It would completely strip it of its impact. However, um, as wonderful as this show is uh in regards to how they're presenting all this i mean uh, supernatural the supernatural stuff is spooky but it's nowhere near as scary as like the stuff based on real events um right and but i i also worry 
about um, especially in the la- in the last few years with the presentation of stories uh, wrapped in fantasy or sci-fi uh, mm. that talk about the black experience in this country if black trauma is taking on a new sort of commodification in this country where mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. all right let's think of the worst things that have happened to black people of which there is no short supply and wrap it up in a show and uh, present it to the public. It's it, it's a it's a double-edged sword because the education is super important and, and poignant. When I remember when Watchmen came out, and like I said before, in that first episode, they started off with the Tulsa race riots. There was a a very large dialogue online of white people who were just like. I had no idea this happened. There were even black people who were saying, I didn't know mm-hmm. that this happened. Mm-hmm. This is this is a real thing. And on that aspect, mm-hmm. I'm totally on board. But when it comes down to seeing black people suffer, it's part of the story, but it's also something that that society is so used to in the in the framing of presenting it as a spectacle even going as far back as lynchings you know like you know like we all know they used to have postcards of lynchings and hand them handing them out afterward as souvenirs when when white christians used to come out of church on sunday they would get flyers saying hey hey we're having a lynching later why don't you come and you know bring the kids and it'll be a it'll be a fun time and i feel like there's some aspect of that in what what we see today with the with the through line of seeing black trauma on social media with interaction with the cops and every Mm -hmm. other marginalization and and form of violence and then leading up into the more polished hollywood version of that trauma so i'm Mm -hmm. down for the education but it's just like i also feel like this country has a taste for uh, uh, black suffering, and that that makes me uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah, no, you 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 said it. Um, great, great points that you you brought up, and I think that a lot of the pushback, at least from the people in my circles, I think it definitely it connect resonates or connects to the point you just brought up, where it's almost it's feeling like it. Um, you know, we're benefiting or entertainment, the trauma of black people becomes our entertainment. Mm. And that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. It is. And um, I, I had mentioned to you another series called Snowfall, which I, yeah. I think is interesting. To both deal with Compton. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting to connect it with this one, especially in relationship to the point you just brought up, because you don't hear that kind of pushback on that series of Snowfall. And essentially, Snowfall is a, is, a, is a series about how the government systematically brought cocaine into the crack cocaine into the black community and completely like dismantled it. And this is and this is the stage of the black community after it's been built after this period of this in the series them. So in the series them, you have the 30s and 40s where where black people couldn't live in the suburbs. Then the 40s and 50s, they could live in the suburbs. They now build their own community, a thriving and whatever. And then in the 80s, the government comes in and gives them crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. 
And it's like, I thought these two series were so interesting right next to each other, but nobody talks about Snowfall as being trauma porn. Where that is trauma porn. That is yes. a scene of this of a thriving black community off of some white powder. Mm. And and it's systematically, you know, sort of like infiltrated by the government, just in the same way that like this notion of segregated and unequal environments were created by the government in an early period of time. And so I, I agree with you in that, you know, this idea of black trauma, you don't want it to be a form of entertainment, but we've been seeing in all these like these movies about black on black crime, mm. Mm. you know, yes. and yes. we're not talking about that. I, I, it's weird because I, I feel that um, I, I think that speaks to the again to the pop culture aspect of it because it's wrapped up in this pop culture shell that more people consume it. Whereas I feel like Snowfall, not many as many people talk about it because it's like it's very it's like this is the truth, you know, like this is this is what happens. It's it's like shows things kind of like in a in a kind of like it's shot very well. It's very like it. it uh, some of the some of the scenes are extremely well directed i love the color palette and the whole thing but uh it's it's very blunt about the drug trade and how um drugs seeped into uh the black community in the 80s uh crack cocaine specifically uh so that's the thing i i felt like i was i was talking about before where i was like i'm conflicted about this because it's like you know like at the same time like uh, you're talking about a true thing, but you don't want it slapped on a t-shirt for like, like, you know, Oreo to have like a, you know, a, a day where it's like, Hey, yes. check out these Oreos, you know, it, it celebrates this, you know, this particular moment in time, like, you know, and, and then it's, Oreo, it's, it loses. <laughs> Oreo would do that. They would make commemorative cookies of, uh, <laughs> of traumatic events, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, I, I it, that that's I mean that's just capitalism for you, right? Exactly. That's and that's 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 the big conflict. Is like where do you where is the message absorbed, whether or absorbed in the right way? Like uh, and that that's that's kind of like my my big conflict with shows like them, with shows like Watchmen. Or I'm just like this is really cool, but at the same time, it's like. Uh, you know, selling Watchmen merchandise and uh, and all this stuff, and and you know, uh, and, and and seeing this kind of stuff is it's a little weird. It's a it's a little strange. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm hoping it's the beginning of uh, a larger paradigm shift in education. Um, it's like now that now that we have these specific and defined events in the and the wider like pop con consciousness. I'm hoping that it leads to either a changing of uh, the standard uh, educational rubric in this country. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about putting critical race theory uh, in schools and uh, mm -hmm. ma mainly focused on the Pulitzer Prize winning work of the 1619 Project. And mm. there being tremendous pushback by uh, conservatives, the GOP, uh, saying that it's going to teach um, like hate against white people. It's just like, no, that's called propaganda. Teaching the actual truth uh, just enriches society and teaches us not to make the same mistakes over and over again. It's like, in general, do we all hate British people? No. 
do we all hate England? We should. No, I mean, <laughs> we let, let's put it clearly. We all know. Sorry. We all know the shit that the the empire did back in the day. Right. You know, like right. It, 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 and and it's is still being felt to this day. But right. there we. But you know, they're America's closest ally. Let's put it that way. Palestine. Palestine. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, hello. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it's it's about putting things uh, in in their proper context so that we could uh, we can move forward. But um, at the same time, that also empowers people. Like people knowing about uh, colonialism as it affected white people uh, has allowed America to establish its independence and its point of national pride so that you know it's never been under threat of being taken over or colonized ever since because people know like this is where we came from we fought to be free you know that whole uh that whole party line but uh if you do that with critical race theory then the same thing in my opinion the same thing happens people know like we cannot allow policy that is worded very ambiguously, but we know through its effects affect marginalized groups. We can't allow that to continue. If if there was a concerted effort toward critical race theory uh, in this country, let's say starting in the 70s and 80s or even shortly after the civil rights movement, then efforts today to limit voting would, there's no way it would have gotten past like the the conspiracy stage because it's it's so clearly voter suppression against people yeah. of color, uh, but because most people are ignorant to how that's passed off. Um, I mean, even even back in the day when when uh, when it came down to redlining and uh, and uh, people not having the right to vote. It was so rarely, if ever, explicit language of saying black people can't vote, black people can't live here. They hid it in policy like, oh, well, we drew lines around certain neighborhoods. We don't lend to those neighborhoods. But they never said, but they they knew that those neighborhoods were mostly. They black. were more explicit. They were more, they were more explicit then than they are now. Because in the red line maps, you do see sure, uh, sure. Negro, Negro neighborhood or you know, they do put that language in the covenants, deep covenants of the homes mm -hmm. in, in the suburbs. They did were very explicit. You cannot sell this home to a black family. For sure. So back then, they they were very open with their with the racism. Now it's a, it's a lot more insidious. Uh, yeah, I I I, I, I remember seeing that in the first episode of them where they talk about um, they're just like uh, you know they have they sign that contract where it's just like no person of Negro blood. Uh, yada 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 in perpetuity of can ever own can ever own own this house without the approval of you know so and so white person or whatever um and jeez it, it, it's just it, it's really kind of eye-opening how just going back to like the pop culture point how like it's pop culture that's that's throwing this this mm -hmm. these kind of messages and these historical facts mm -hmm. in uh in the mix so um yeah. and I think uh, that's why that's why i appreciate like a film like them and a film like snowfall i appreciate both of them snow so much and watchmen and all those other films because 
they're not, it's not just about the fantasy, it's not about the drama, not only about the drama, but they bring in those facts of who was responsible for these tragedies. Like right. Snowfall is very explicit. They showed a whole process of the government, the CIA, you know, carefully crafting how this white powder got into the black community. Like they, right. but in other films, you don't see that part. You just see people slinging rock on the corner and mm. you see black people killing each other, but you don't see that hidden part, which is how did this get here? How did this happen? And um, for me, I think that's really fascinating. Like they, there needs to be more of that integrated into films because there's certain level of storytelling there. There's certain level of just like understanding of our history that continues to condition us because these are the things that condition us. Media conditions us. Mm. It's right. what it's what sort of like colors our subconscious mind. And so whatever it is that we think is default in the world is because of just the media that's been pushed out to us. So all the better for media to be the space and place where these messages and understandings and truths get like brought to light. Hmm. Yeah. Very Couldn't true. agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Very true. Uh, where do you guys see um, the, the, the future of the genre going? Um, like it's 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 wonderful that we have certain aspects now being seeped into the broader consciousness. But like, does it go ad infinitum um, at this point, or does it? Do you see it evolving into uh, something broader? Uh, it's just gonna be more more TV shows, more series. Um, they're gonna be more explicit because it's not like. You know, we haven't had black, you know, film or um, film producers and directors making stuff in the past, but I think they'll be more explicit about this is a family, this is the condition of the family if they're struggling, and this is what led to that struggle. Like, let's understand the real context of why, you know, this family's thriving or struggling or whatever. Um, and just, you know, bring that to light. I think that's, that's great, you know. I do too. I, I just feel that it's, uh, it, 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 I, I just don't want the, any of the messages behind it all to be watered down by by what I see as like a capitalist system who was just like, how can we work to make this, you know, sell, you know? Mm. Uh, I, I, I do, like you said, uh, you know, like uh, the commodification of black pain. And I, that's the thing that I, that I don't want is like for... Uh, for 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 it to be slapped onto like you know merchandise and for it to kind of lose its meaning or lose its mm. its sting because i think the the uh the the thing about uh both them and uh and uh snowfall is that it speaks truth and it has this message where you, if you really think about it a conscientious viewer would be like ooh Jesus Christ, like this, this is happening. And, and it kind of also speaks to like uh, the psychological impact on black communities and stuff like that. Uh, from, uh, just real quick, uh, I, I wanted to ask, uh, did you, did you know the, both these shows were back to back, like about Compton um, or um, is that something that you just were like, Whoa, no, it know? wasn't, it wasn't something I pursued, but when I saw, when I started watching snowfall, which is maybe like a month or two after I watched them, I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> 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 you know, 
Because I didn't know Snowfall was based in Compton. And when they said Compton, I was just like, oh my God. Like, it might as well be all, a sequel, right? <laughs> <laughs> Part two, stage two of drama. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know that that history of Compton existed. You know, because you know, when you hear about all the movies like A Boys in the Hood, like all those films based in Compton, it's always a black. You know, it's always a black lens. It's always, you, you don't hear about stories of content when it was white. So them, when I saw them, that was shocking for me. I already knew that history, but I didn't know, you know, the, the film just opened my eyes to it. Like it, it just made it so vivid. Um, and that's why I appreciated it so much. Like, what does that transition really look like from like something that was purely white and constructed to be white to something that is black? And then Snowfall also was an eye-opening for me because, you know, you always understand Compton to have this very, like, negative residue on it. But it was actually was a thriving community that then got shifted into a not-thriving community. And so that, for me, was really, like, what gripped me is just, like, how those films captured that transition and how traumatic that transition was. Damn, Foma, I, I know we both want to keep on talking about this <laughs> i certainly oh, do i'm just like man this is it's this is so cool um but uh i know we gotta cap it uh because you you, you have to split you have other you know you gotta fight the good fight out there uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Ife, if, uh, if people want to learn more about black space they can go to blackspace.org correct that's right that's right and then my own website for my own consultancy is ifomaebo.org, I-F-E-O-M-A-E-B-O.com, excuse me, ifomaebo.com, or creativeurbanalchemy.com. They both go to the same platform. Very nice. Okay, we'll be cool. sure we'll be sure to link those sites in the episode description so people can click and head awesome. on over. And I know that you have uh, social media presences as well, yes? Yes. Um, C- C- as in cat, U as an umbrella, A as an apple, underscore design on Twitter and IG. Nice. C-U-A underscore design on Twitter, Twitter and IG. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, so, well, that about wraps it up for this episode. <laughs> this was really cool. Uh, we're on with uh, with Afoma, and uh, I'm Pablo Morales Martinez. And I'm Ernesto Mancibo. And together we are... <laughs> <laughs> the robots versus sexes program on radio free brooklyn sorry <laughs> stepped on you there no um, problem uh and while you're out there you could try keeping it real but you should try keeping it right song of the week i'm going back to the south I'm going back, 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 back when my roots ain't watered down. Growing, growing like a bob bob tree of life on fertile ground. My ancestor put me on game. Long charm on gold chains with my old shoon in a jail. Drip all on me. Uncle, I just keep it. Holla, don't I? Smell like such a non-chopper
them cheering, they like chick now. I charge my crystals in a full moon. You can send them whistles, I'ma send my goons. Baby sister rapping with my yacht. Trust me, they gon' need an army. Rubber bullets bouncing on me. Made a picket sign off your picket fist. Take it as a warning. Waste beats from your Uber. For honey, Billy, that's a moose Straw line to the barbecue. Put us any damn way, we gon' make it look cute. Motherland, trip on me, honey, come.